We are, so tonight we, we finished John, we finished Ecclesiastes, the books we've been going through since we first began, and so <laughs> we're going to start a new series tonight. The title pretty much gives the whole thing away, Epic Fails of the Patriarchs. Um, we, uh, I think we tend, we tend to look at the Old Testament heroes as the superheroes of the faith who are so far above us that we can't even relate to them, and so... Over the next four weeks, the goal, the big goal, is to deconstruct uh, and demythologize, deconstruct the, uh, the superhero vibe of the Old Testament uh, saints to see that they're really a whole lot like us. And so, would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word as we read from Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 8 through 12 and 7 through 19. Let's now listen intently together to the reading of God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he had received the promises, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you for the amazing beauty of your word, Lord. It tells us it doesn't pull any punches. It's so honest. It tells us the real lives of these people uh, about how they really are so much like us, Lord, so that we could relate and so that when you say that we have this host of witnesses before us, we can see that there are other people just like us who clung to the promises of Christ even through the midst of hardship and suffering, even as you call us to do and so we can have great hope, Lord. We pray Uh, that you would show us the reality of life, but also the beauty of Jesus uh, as we seek his face today. Lord, please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. One One of the most embarrassing moments I've had uh, as a pastor, was was at a at a an event where there were a bunch of different pastors speaking, and the, the first guy went up, the guy right before me, and we none of us knew what each other were talking about. We, I mean, we had a general idea of what the topics were, but I didn't know what everybody was going to say. And this pastor who went right before me preached from this same passage. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went on and on and on about how obedient Abraham was, about how he just heard the word of God and listened and just got to it. 
And I mean, the truth is, Abraham had some great moments. He had some great moments of faith, but I was about to speak <laughs> on the whole, the whole totality of Abraham's life. And the reality is, if you look at the whole thing from beginning to end, the reality is that Abraham, he had some great moments of faith, but he had some epic fails. Some of the most epic fails of all ancient literature. Uh, and so the embarrassing part was, I had to go up after this guy and, and speak, kind of, you know, he was up there saying, this is Abraham, the man of faith, be like Abraham. And I had to go up there and basically like lay this whole, you know, Abraham's whole life out, which kind of brought up the question, okay, if I'm going to be like Abraham, what, what part of Abraham, well, how like am I supposed to be like Abraham? Because you've got be, you to have a real selective reading to come away from it thinking, you know, Abraham, I should be like Abraham. Okay, be like Abraham in trusting God with my son, or be like Abraham and handing my wife over so I don't get killed? Should I be like Abraham in not taking money from evil sources so that no one can condemn, so that no one will think that no one, but no one, God has blessed me? Or should I be, you know, should I be like Abraham who a second time hands his wife off so he doesn't get killed? You have to have a real selective reading to have this superheroes of the faith mentality. And that's a, I mean, and, and, and so listen, the, the point of these stories in the Old Testament isn't, isn't yeah, there's a part of it, yes, there's a part of it we're called to be, be, like, be like Abraham, to be like David, to be like Jacob, to be like these, 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 these faithful saints of the Old Testament, but it's not always in their actions. At the end of the day, all of these saints are very much like us. They have great moments, they have epic fails, um, but at the end of the day, we all the one thing we really have in common is that all of us are resting in the same promise of God and holding on to that. That the promise of God is worth more than anything this world has to offer. And that's what we're called to be. That's how we're called to be like them, to hold on to those promises in the same way that they did through thick and thin, through moments of great faith, through epic fails. And in and through all that, in and through that whole lifelong process, God is shaping us into something beautiful for the glory of Christ. And so that's the big idea. The whole point of this passage is, is really this. The one thing the Holy Spirit wants us to know more than anything else is this. Is that God shapes us over time to become something beautiful for the glory of Christ. God shapes us over time to become something beautiful for the glory of Christ. Let's look at that one, one part at a time. First, God shapes us over time. Let me read, I'm going to read to you the first, the intro to Abraham. This is Genesis chapter 12. This talks about, uh, this is the, the passage that talks about what the Hebrews 11 passage glowingly reported on for us about Abraham being called out of his environment, out of his father's house, well, really out of security and stability to go do something very scary. Uh, this, is, this is the call of Abraham. Let me read it, and then, then we'll talk about it. So this is Genesis 12, 1 through 5. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, Lot with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Doesn't that sound heroic? That's the, 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 the glowing report. There's this tendency in the New Testament especially, and, and even here, you know, where, where we know, we know theologically from the Bible that, that those who are in Christ, that those who are redeemed, those who are saved, that God considers our sin to be as far as the east is from the west. There was this, last week in, in Tim's uh, catechism class, he had this great beautiful line talking about God and about our sin being presented to God and God, when our sin is presented to God, God looks at us and says, what sin? And so that reality is kind of reflected in some of these New Testament stories or even in the official chronicle of Genesis 12. It kind of, kind of glosses over a couple of things that are important to know. And, and so here, that's the glowing report the beautiful glowing report of how Abraham, what that other pastor was basing his sermon off of. But if we look at the Bible, if we look at the Bible and we study exactly what happened, the reality of what happened is this. And how we learn this from listening to Stephen, the martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he tells the same story about Abraham, but he gives us a couple of more details. So let's read that. Uh, this is from Acts chapter 7. Stephen's up in front of the whole Sanhedrin, and he says, you know, brothers and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, that's a super important part, and said to him, go out from the land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, undisclosed amount of time, until his father died, and then God removed him into the land in which you are now living. So listen to what just happened there. Where's what God said? It tells us that, that God didn't come to Abraham when he was living in Haran. God came to Abraham before that when he was living in the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. And so God says, while he's in Mesopotamia, leave your family leave your father's house behind and go to Canaan. But what happened was Abraham brought his family, moved about 75 miles upriver to the city of Haran and camped out there for we don't know how long until Abraham's father died. And then it says God removed him Whatever that means, if God ever removed you from something, God's removed me from a couple things, amen? So I know what that's like. Some, whatever he said, God removed him from there and into this land in which you're now living. In other words, so God says, Abraham, it wasn't so courageous. It wasn't so heroic. It wasn't so superhero of the faith. Abraham was kind of halting. He was like, uh, how about I go to Haran? Is that good enough? Because what God called him to do was scary. 
And back in that culture, in those times, if you, you were with your family, you were with your people, you were landed, you had land, you were safe, you were protected by the armies of your people. To go to another land that you didn't know, to another country, to another nation, anything could happen to you. There were no protections. So this is legit. This is a scary thing that God asked Abraham to do in real life. And he responded much like we might. He kind of went halfway at first, kind of halfway, kind of shuffled into it, shuffled back, shuffled into it, and then eventually God, in his mercy, removed him and put him into Canaan. That's how it started for Abraham. It wasn't a super big heroic move. It was kind of like us, kind of half in, half out, but God was faithful, and God got him there. And that's just the beginning of the story. From there... The reality check of Abraham's life, it kind of it keeps going. As soon as Abraham gets to the promised land, what happens? There's a famine. And God says, or Abraham says, God's not going to provide for us. God's called us here to this land, but now there's a famine. He's not going to provide for us. And so he runs to Egypt. Unfaithful. Fear. And when he gets to Egypt, he's afraid that the Pharaoh is going to kill him because his wife is beautiful. Sarah is beautiful. And so he says, tell Pharaoh, you're my sister, so they don't kill me. And he gives his wife to Pharaoh to be one of, uh, one of, the, one of his wives in his harem. Faith or fear? Fear. Uh, so famine's over. They come back. Abraham comes back with Sarai to the land. He's with his, his nephew, Lot. Uh, and, and Abraham, he tells Lot, they get back to the promised land, and he tells Lot, his nephew, you take whatever part that you want, and I'll take the other part. He's trusting God to give him, to, 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 to providentially provide for him. Abraham could have said, I want the valleys, I want the good land, and you, Lot, my younger nephew, have to take what's left over. But he didn't say that. He just left it up to God. And, of course, Lot takes the best land, and Abraham gets the hillside, which is a lot harder to farm and to, and to graze sheep in. And he says, all praise to God. And trust that God's going to provide for him, even though he gets the bad stuff. Faithful. And right after that, God comes and affirmed, reaffirms the covenantal promises to him again. And then the next thing that happens is the kings come and take to the part of the land that, that Lot, his nephew, had taken. These kings come and wipe everybody out, take everybody prisoner, and split. This is an amazing part of God's providence, right? Protecting Abraham from that. And Abraham says, God will protect us. He takes 318 guys. What are the chances that five kings came with, an, with five armies more than 318 guys? Pretty good. He has 318 guys. He goes and he attacks these kings, gets everybody back, and brings them back. He says, God will protect us. Let's go do what's right. Faithful. And then God comes in and reaffirms him again. The king Melchizedek, the king of Salem, this pagan city somehow has a priest of the most high God, a remnant. Uh, and he blesses Abraham, reaffirming his promise to him, reassuring him along the way. And after that, Abraham, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah come and say, we want to give you a bunch, of the, a bunch of the money. We want to thank you for saving us by giving you all this money. And he says, no, I'm not taking any of your money so that no one would say that I got rich off of you and that no one would say that I'm, I have, I'm only the Lord has blessed me. He refuses a bunch of easy money that he could have taken. 
that's hard to do. Amen? And he doesn't take it. Instead, he trusts God. He says, God will prosper me. I'll take what God gives me. And then God comes again and reaffirms this, him by, by instituting the covenant of grace with him. He puts, that's when he puts Abraham to sleep and he unilaterally, God alone makes the promise to Abraham that all of these things I will do for you. And you would think after all that, that Abraham's faith is building, he's just going to be a superstar from then on. You know what he does next, right after that? Hagar. He's now, now, 25 years later, God still hasn't provided the son who he's promised all these blessings through, and so he says to himself, we need to, obviously, well, God wants this to happen, but I need to help God. I need to force this through. I need to make this happen now because obviously God's held up. And so he decides he has a child with his wife's servant. Faith, fear, fear. Fear-based, causes all kinds of problems. And you know what happens right after that? God comes and reassures him again. Institutes circumcision, the promise. And then right after that, so, uh, Abraham intercedes for Sodom, intercedes, prays for his nephew Lot, that he would be rescued from the destruction of Sodom. Faithful move. And then right after that, he goes to another land, another king. Is, think he, he's afraid another king's going to kill him, so again, he gives his wife away to this king. Same thing he did in Egypt. Did not learn the lesson. Way years down the road. Still, this awful reoccurring sin just pops back up in his life out of nowhere. Like, where did this come from? Why would I, why did he, he must have been walking away. This pagan king chastises Abraham, the man of faith, saying, why would you do this? Why would you do this unrighteous thing? Abraham had to just walk away from that going, what is, what is wrong with me? And you know what God does after that? He reassures him again. Reaffirms his promise with the birth of Isaac. Finally, the, the promised son is born. Abraham's 900 years old. Sarah's 90. She's barren. And God comes through with this promise that he had made 25 years earlier even through all of Abraham's failures and, and moments of, of faith and mistrusting God and, and deciding that God's not going to come through and trying to force it through himself and, and through all of that, God, in his perfect timing, comes through with the promise of the blessing of Abraham or the blessing of Isaac, his son. And so there's a lot we can learn from that, that, that brief synopsis of Abraham's life. What we can learn from that, first of all, is that if you... If you if you weigh it out and you take, you take into account the, all the faithful moves of Abraham and all the failures, you know, what the, you know what the ratio is? 50-50. Abraham's batting 500. I mean, in baseball, that's amazing, right? But in life, I mean, does that make you feel better? Does that make you feel a little bit better? I mean, how was your week? 50-50? All right. You're on par with Abraham. Now, that's not saying you shoot... You don't shoot for 50-50, right? If you shoot for 50-50, you're going to be batting 90-10. You're going to have the mullet of Christian obedience. 
So you don't want to do that. The point is, as we strive after, what is the point is this, that over the course of Abraham's life, as he's striving after holiness and striving after being obedient to God, where he ended up, and when you, you know, look at the course up to that point at least, he's about 50-50. That's just how it is in a fallen world. The point is he hung on and he stayed. <sighs> You know, the bigger thing that I think we learn out of this is, is what I, I, this hit me like a ton of bricks this week as I was studying through it, is that there's four big instances of failure, four big instances of faithfulness, and through it all, there's four big instances where God comes in and reassures Abraham of his covenant love for him. And it doesn't matter what had just happened. Sometimes it's right after a massive fail and God comes in and reassures him. Sometimes it's after a, a moment of greatness and God comes in and reassures him. The point is that through the whole thing, good and bad, God is always coming in and reassuring Abraham of his faithfulness to Abraham. And that is not only beautiful, but it's completely unique amongst any religious idea that mankind has ever devised. Because we would never make that kind of thing up, man. We could never imagine that in a million years, that God would be that compassionate and that God would be that, that he would love us that much. You know? And through all of that, God was shaping Abraham. Over that whole course of time, he was shaping him. And you would think, though, with the birth of Isaac, that that would be pretty much it. Unbelievable joy. God has come through on these promises. At this point, you expect, you expect the curtains closed. You expect the happily ever after. But there's, some, there's more. There's more to the story, which is the second, the second part. First, God shapes us over time. And second, God shapes us over time into something beautiful. We're all expecting the happily ever after moment. Isaac is there. Sarah and Abraham have the baby, and they're just rejoicing, watching him grow up through all the stages of childhood, just, just, just glorifying God, just you know, waiting for the promises to come through. They're waiting for Isaac to grow up and get through school and then get married and have kids and to see the family blossom and God's promise start to come true for them. And then one morning... In the, in the cool of the desert air, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. What? Imagine it's going through his mind right there. You promised me. You promised me the son. He's grown up. You promised all these promises and it relies on this child. And now you're telling me you want me to take him and you want me to kill my son? And so that's what he does. The story, this whole the story of the binding of Isaac 
Abraham somehow sets off through the desert with, with his servants, with Isaac. Probably tears streaming down his eyes in, the mid, in his mind of mind, in his heart, probably just praying over and over again, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. Gritting his teeth. They walk three days across the desert the whole time. Isaac is already dead in his father's mind and finally they get to the mountain of Moriah. They go up the hill. Abraham is fully prepared to go through with it and at the last minute God stops him. He says, don't do it. Provides himself a sacrifice in his place. But Isaac, but Abraham was ready to go through with it. How did he do that? We get a hint. The hint is in Genesis 22 itself when Abraham, he's walking up the mountain with Isaac, wood strapped to his back, and he says to the servants, stay here. He says to the servants, stay here, and I and the boy will go worship, and then we will return to you. His mind, he's thinking, okay, I'm going up to kill my son, but he's coming back with me. And the answer we get in Hebrews 11, the passage we read first. It says, by faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac for whom he had received, for he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You know what he just said? He said after 30 years of walking with God, seeing God's faithfulness over and over and over again. Abraham was convinced, if I go up this mountain, if I kill my son, God has promised these promises through him. I know he will be faithful, and if I go through with it, God is going to just have to raise him from the dead. And I believe God could do it. And so he walked up. He walked up that mountain. Can you imagine? Man, I'd like to say I'm there. <laughs> it's not been 30 years yet. But I'm not. But listen, Abraham didn't start there, right? You can see the progression through the story. Genesis 12, go to Canaan. Uh, okay, when my father dies, when it gets a little warmer, uh, when I get some more money saved up, when, uh, you know... I finished my degree when uh, blah, 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 blah. That's Abraham when he starts. Then we get to uh, chapter 15. Chapter 15, Abraham walks out. It's been 20 years since God promised him a baby. And he comes out and says, how am I going to, how, uh, how are you going to do this? And God says, look at the stars of the heavens. If you can count how many stars there are, so many will your descendants be. And Abraham looks at the stars of heaven. And he says, okay, let me think this through. God made all those stars, and he's telling me that at 100 years old, with my barren wife, we're going to have a baby. That's not nearly as tough as making a billion stars, so I'm just going to believe it. I'm going to forego everything that I see and think is true based on my earthly perspective, and I'm going to trust that what God says from his heavenly perspective and his power is more true and more reliable than what I think and I'm going to go with it and I believe it. And he believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. Big move. Boom, boom. 
And then finally, Genesis 22, he gets the call to God to kill his own son, his most prized, beautiful baby boy. And he says to himself, God has always been faithful if he calls me to do this. He will raise him from the dead because he is going to fulfill the promises that he's given me through this son. Faithfulness. He was so convinced of God's faithfulness to him that he was able to do that. It's our salvation, like our sanctification. It's a picture of the progression of it. Where it starts, how God moves with us, gives us these circumstances that we suffer through, and in and through it, he's building in it something beautiful, creating in us beauty, creating in us the image of Jesus. That's how we reflect that back into the world. You know, which is, which is the goal of Christian maturity and discipleship, to trust God no matter what, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the, the experts are telling you, no matter what you're afraid of, to, to, to say God's word says this, and I believe it. Trust it. That's Christian maturity. We have, we have a friend right now who is Christian. Her life is falling apart because she's been encouraged her entire life that Christian maturity is measured in your emotional response to worship your, in your emotional experience with God. And so all, of the, all the disciplines, the busy work of the Christian life and disciplines were then shifted towards that end. If I read my Bible, if I have a quiet time, I'll get an emotional response. I'll be able to move God to get, have him give me what I want. And it's falling apart. And, and side note, trust me, you don't want what you want. You want what God wants. Amen? So Christian maturity, what we see finally in Abraham's life is that trust and worship in all circumstance and the level of it is he went from the could to the would. He went from the abstract to the concrete. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe God would raise my son from the dead should that ever come to pass. It's another thing to be marching up that hill with a knife That's the hard part. The hard part's moving from the could to the would. It's a lot easier to say, God, I, I know God will provide for us financially. It's a whole other thing to say, God will provide for us financially when you see some easy money come in that you know is wrong. When it's going to be defrauding or fraud or you have to lie. It's easier to say God could hold me up under temptation than to say God will hold me up. God has promised to be faithful to me. What we see is that God is making and is making Abraham beautiful. But that's not it. There's more to it. But you could look at this story and you could say, you could just look at the story itself about it, God calling Abraham to kill his son and be like, that is crazy. 
why would God ever act? I mean, there's a lot of things you could do to test somebody or prove their faithfulness. Why? That's nuts. That's sadistic. And there are critics who look at the Bible, look at stories like this and say, see, I ain't worshiping a God like that. And we could also ask from this, how, how do we move from the could to the would? And both of those questions have the same answer. The same answer is, is the glory of Christ. Third point. God shapes us over time to into something beautiful. Three, four, the glory of Christ. And we look at it in retrospect, we can see the whole story. And God, what God is doing is he is allowing Abraham to participate in something far more beautiful than his own sanctification, than his own life. Something that has endured for 4,000 years. Something that is bringing and has brought glory to Jesus. He was allowing Abraham to glorify Christ 2,000 years before he was ever even born. Look at, I want you to look at, let me show you what just, ha- what just happened. What just happened in that story in Isaac, in Genesis 22. First, I want to look at all the similarities. If you, you want to look at the Bible, Genesis 22 is what we're looking at, or you can do it from your memory. All the similarities in the story. God calls Isaac your son, your only son whom you love. That reminds us of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Then Matthew 3.17, that this is my son, my beloved son. It has that same language, that same cadence to it, to call our minds back. Isaac is the son who is the sacrifice. Captain Obvious, that's pretty blatant. Takes three days for them to get to the mountain of Moriah. Isaac is already dead in his father's mind as he walks that three days. Abraham lays the wood. The father lays the wood on the son's back. Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Doesn't say God will provide for himself a sacrifice. That's a big difference. And God, at the end, provides this animal sacrifice, which is the Old Testament picture of Jesus. But there's more. The, the crazy part of this is, you know, he says in Genesis 22, he says, go to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains that I will show you. In First Chronicles 3, we learn this. That as Solomon is building the temple, it says... And then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed. It's the same mountain. It's the same mountain. 2,000 years before, 1,000 years before the temple was built, 2,000 years before Jesus was crucified just outside the north gate on Golgotha on that same mountain. God had Abraham take his son to the same place to show us a picture of what Jesus would do for us. Of what he would do for us. And listen to what, 
Listen to what Abraham calls the place after the fact. In Gen- this is crazy. Genesis 20, 22.14, he says, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What's the it? The it is the sacrifice that would occur. You know, at the end of that Hebrews 11 passage, it says is that he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He understood, Abraham understood that there was a figurative aspect of what they had just lived out. And, and that, there was, that it, was a, it was teaching them about God's salvation. There's this part in one of my other favorite versions of the Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, this isn't in the Bible, but I think it's, I, I would imagine it's pretty accurate. It talks about half after that, Isaac and Abraham just sat on the top of that mountain thinking about what just happened. And this is what, this is, this is what it says. As they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of the fires die in the cool night air, the stars, God's promises that Abraham's family would be as many as those stars, The stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky. God helped Abraham and Isaac to understand something. That God wanted his people to live and not to die. That God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they needed to trust him. And one day someone will be born into your family, God promised them. And he will bring happiness to the whole world. It's not in the Bible, but I think it's theologically solid. I think they sat there on that mountaintop for a long time just thinking, wow. 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 What is God going to do? Well, we know what he did. And so we can answer these two hard questions. Why would God do that first? And also, how do we move from the could to the would in the hard things in life? Question one, why would God do this to Abraham? Short answer, blessing. Blessing. God was allowing Abraham, God had brought Abraham up into this maturity of faith that allowed him to make these big moves for the kingdom and then it was something that was glorifying Christ who it was recorded in the Bible and it was an amazing and beautiful thing that Abraham was able to do for God, which is my hope. I mean, I pray that all the time. God, sanctify me by any means necessary no matter how hard it is or how much it hurts as fast as you think I can take it because I want the peaceable fruit of righteousness and I want to make big moves. I want our church to make big moves. That's our prayer. There are things in your life right now that look like the sacrifice of Isaac, but it's really blessing. And you need to go with it. Second question, how do we go from the could to the would? How do we go from the theoretical, I would trust God in this, to the actually trusting him when it's happening? First, we can trust 
in the power of God. Look, if God was able to tell the whole story 2,000 years before it happened, that's a lot of power. If he has that much power, we can trust him. We can trust him that he has the power to protect us in all things. That he can do anything. Second perspective. We have this story of Abraham's life over time and we are able to see things from an elevated position now. It's one thing to look at things from the ground, but it's another thing to get up to a height and be able to see the whole parade as it walks by. And we are now, So we can know right now we're in the part of our salvation where we're being saved. That's the hard part. We have been saved at the cross and also when the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. We get saved. We're being saved, which is the hard part right now. But we also know that there's going to come a day when we will be saved. We will be resurrected from the dead. We can trust in that. And third, love. We know. We know we can trust God in the big things because we know that 2,000 years later, when another father walked his son up that same mountain, when they got to the top, nobody stopped it. They went through with it for us so that we could have life because God loves us. And we know where we're going. And that gives us the power to trust God today. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word, for the things it teaches us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, Lord, when we're faced with that thing that looks like to all the world, like awful sacrifice. We pray that we would look at it, and if it is in accordance with your word and what we know to be true, we pray that you would help us to look at it and instead say, blessing, I'm going to go with it. Even though it hurts at first, Lord, we trust you. We know that you're shaping us through those things into something beautiful. And we pray that you would use that, Lord, you would beautify us, that you would create Christ-likeness in us, Lord, so that we might be able to do big things in the world for you. Whatever that is, Lord. Whatever you call us to do. And Lord, we thank you that you've gone to such great lengths to assure us of the truth of Jesus, the reality of our salvation, that as we go up and down in this walk of life, that you are constantly reassuring us, and we know that to be true. You're constantly letting us know of your faithfulness. And we know that because what Jesus has done for us, that we are safe, and that we will be with you in heaven, Lord. Help that motivate us to stick with you as you stick with us through this evil age and into the next. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.